Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we're going to talk about one of the really big problems in the trading system. It's about just how hard it is to track down government subsidies. To help us explain, we've brought in Ken Ash. Ken is the Director of Trade and Agriculture at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD. Ken, hello. Hi, Samaya. First question, how, how do you at the OECD decide which questions to answer? How does work arrive on your lap? So the conversation takes place amongst the members of the OECD Trade Committee. So there's 36 governments that are represented. Um, they talk to us in the Secretariat about what keeps them awake at night, what trade policy concerns they share, um, what they know and what they would like to know uh, about how to resolve those trade policy concerns. Um, and we propose to them analysis to address their questions. They agree or not, and then we undertake the work. And so what trade policy questions are keeping them up at night at the moment? Uh, there's quite a few. Uh, there's much less conversation around some of the things in the news, like tariffs, for example. Uh, much more of an interest in understanding what governments are doing uh, around the world to support industries in, in ways that can distort international markets and make the playing field not level. So, so competition on the basis of something other than productivity and competitiveness. This, this is a big issue. So I think here in in the U.S., the way that that conversation is sometimes referred to is is essentially as you know concerns over excess capacity. There's there's too much capacity for production out there, and something needs to be done. What's your immediate response to that framing of the of the issue? Well, if you only come at it from the angle of of there's 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 an excess capacity in the world, the first question that somebody will ask you is, well, whose capacity is excess? And I have no idea what the answer to that question is. Uh, again, analytically, um, governments provide support in many, many ways to uh, sectors of their economy. Some of that support is very positive and constructive and uh, leads to innovation. Some of it encourages production that otherwise would not happen. Uh, so trying to distinguish those two forms of support is essentially the the, the approach that we take. So step one is identifying all of the different forms of government support that are that are out there these subsidies how do you go about doing that in practice so we don't know we being uh, analysts we being governments what is happening in every government in every sector around the world so identifying what governments currently do it's job one um, so how do you go about that? In a perfect world, we would ask governments to tell us what it is they are doing. Uh, we don't live in a perfect world, and we don't often get information of that nature from governments. Can I just jump in there? Because well, at the WTO, there are requirements to notify certain subsidies. So is it that actually certain subsidies they don't have to notify, or countries just aren't notifying all their subsidies? Both. Um, governments are required to notify um, those notifications are reviewed by the membership. Uh, any gaps can be discussed. Any confusions can be clarified. Um, the difficulty, of course, is that notifications lag by several years in some cases. Um, notifications are sometimes incomplete. 
discussions um, in the review process don't always resolve those differences. So it's it's a it's a well designed uh, system at the WTO that uh, isn't always implemented as as the architects I think originally intended. And so, sorry, back to to what you were saying, identifying the subsidies. What are the different kinds of support that you look out for? Uh, all kinds of support. So we don't worry in the first instance whether a support contributes to a good objective, a bad objective, a good outcome, a bad outcome. We look for government involvement in a particular sector. The OECD has been measuring support to agriculture for just about 30 years. Um, what we do is we identify actions that government take that are specific to the food and agriculture sector. Uh, we estimate the expenditures based upon government data. Uh, we also estimate the value of border protection. Now, this is a little bit complicated, so give me give me a half a moment, okay? So, uh, governments sometimes put tariffs in place. No. Uh, yes, they do. You may not have heard about that, but they, they do occasionally. In agriculture, they've been doing it for a very long time. And the tariffs tend to be higher than they are in manufacturing, and they tend to rise with the level of, of processing and value added. But to get to the basic point, when a government imposes a restriction at the border, uh, it keeps domestic prices higher than they are on world markets. So that price gap, the difference between what a domestic consumer pays and what that consumer would pay if she or he had access to the global markets, is a form of support uh, that we estimate um, based upon uh, the price gap and the volume that's consumed uh, domestically. So in agriculture, more than half of the support that's provided to uh, producers comes in the form of high consumer prices. Uh, that's a more complicated form of support than we see in, in, in some other cases. But we also measure direct subsidies to the purchase of fuel, fertilizers, pesticides. Uh, we measure the uh, transfers that governments make to producers on the basis of income or production uh, or acreage and so on. So there's a combination of taxpayer-funded support and consumer-financed support. When engaging with this issue uh, recently, the, the three sectors that I've heard most about are one, steel, uh, two, aluminium, and, and three, semiconductors. And and the situation in steel and aluminium, I suppose people have been using this excess capacity problem to motivate the tariffs that the Trump administration ultimately imposed. Uh, and there, the feeling was that this was such an issue and nothing was working, and therefore these tariffs were a sort of measure of last resort. And then the, the semiconductors industry was this one where people were saying, well, we really need to solve this in, in steel and aluminium because the semiconductors issue is the issue of the future. If we haven't got some kind of framework for dealing with those metals, then how are we going to deal with semiconductors down the line? So you looked into this question of what was going on in the aluminium sector, of, of where government support was being provided. What motivated that? How did you come to start that work? So... Delegations to the OECD member governments uh, were concerned that uh, there were significant distortions in steel, as you say, but also in, in aluminium. And they asked us to help them identify why. Um, so we undertook to, to identify, to estimate the, the, the support that 
governments around the world provide it to a part of the aluminum value chain. Um, we could do that by asking governments. Um, our experience has been that it's not always possible to get good information from all governments. So instead, we uh, looked at the top 20 firms in the world uh, in the aluminum business. We were able to get information uh, from 17 of those firms uh, through essentially their financial records over a five-year period. We were able to identify not what governments provided, but what firms received uh, by looking at firm-specific information. Um, we did the research, we validated, confirmed what we identified, and we produced it in a report that we published uh, about a year ago. Can you talk about the range of the different kinds of support that you found? Uh, some of the, the types of support are specific to the, to the nature of the industry. So a very big uh, direct uh, uh, subsidy related to the cost of energy, which is a significant input into, into aluminum smelting. Uh, that was large. Um, the other uh, big category of support related to uh, below market financing. So some governments provided either guarantees or uh, below market credit for investment in uh, aluminum capacity. Some governments provide uh, support to industry regardless of the home of a particular firm. Other governments provide uh, support to their own uh, domestic nationals. So we were able to paint, a, 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 I think, a fairly clear story of support uh, across uh, a large number of countries, but to just 17, 17 firms. But th these are big firms. These are firms that represent a significant part of, of global aluminum output. Are you able to be any more specific about any patterns that there were. I think a lot of people coming at this question would assume that basically it was China, China, China. Is that what you found? No, it's more complicated than that. Um, many governments provide support, so let me pick on my own. Uh, I'm, I'm Canadian. Uh, the Canadian uh, government provides uh, low-cost hydro to uh, smelters. Some of the, the, the Gulf countries provide low-cost energy to uh, businesses from many countries that operate uh, in the region. China as well provides energy subsidies and provides uh, low-cost financing to, to Chinese firms operating at different stages of the aluminum value chain. How important is China then for aluminum? Uh, it's important. Uh, China in the last 15 years has gone from a relatively low position in, in terms of global market share to, to close to 50%. And it did that in uh, at least part through various forms of subsidy, including uh, low-cost financing. So there's no question China is, uh, is a major player in terms of providing support uh, to, to the uh, aluminum value chain. Back to this issue of defining uh, what an economic subsidy actually is and the fact that border measures can, can frequently be applied that have the same effect as a direct government payment, even though they're not a direct government payment. Are there examples of that, that that came up in the aluminum sector? What's important when you look across a value chain is that the the, the incidence of, of benefit or support doesn't necessarily be at the moment where a government acts. So uh, if there are restrictions, uh, as there are in China, to the export of a product, 
yet no restrictions on the export of that product when it is further processed, okay? You are keeping domestic prices lower by not letting the product out. The further processed product benefits from lower uh, acquisition costs of its raw material. That is an implicit subsidy to the export of the more processed product. What does all of this mean for how we should think about designing a new system that could actually deal with the problems that we've been talking about? So uh, this will sound a little odd, but we need to actually understand better what it is we are talking about. There is little information available uh, in the nature and the scale of government support in various economic sectors in many countries. So we we need to begin with injecting some transparency into this murky world of, of, of government support. Um, Once we know what governments are doing, we can begin to distinguish uh, what government support, what investments make good sense, either because of market failures or or whatever, from government support that essentially tells a firm or an individual to do something that the market doesn't require. So I guess I have a, a different, I guess, question or concern, which is reading through this aluminium report, it seems that it took an extraordinary amount of kind of detective work. And it, it wasn't the governments, right? You, you said the governments don't always cooperate. For a system to be sustainable, can it really operate with teams like the ones that you direct having to go out and hunt down this information? Don't you need some kind of system where governments are providing the information themselves? And, and it seems kind of hopeless to me that they would ever really have the right incentives to do that. So yes, I hope there's a way. I hope governments learn to cooperate together a little bit more than they've they've done recently in at least some sectors. And I hope no that we don't need teams like my own to continue to to do this forever. What un, what underpins our work is if we can illustrate, demonstrate what governments do in some number of sectors. That is not always what they think they are doing. They are having they're having impacts that perhaps are not always well understood. By, by illustrating, by showcasing, we create the conditions for governments to agree to stop doing things that don't make sense to any of them. This is what underpins the work we've done for a very long time on agriculture. There's been a lot of progress on agriculture. There's much more that needs to be done. But what's happened has been enabled by having the information, having a, an agreed understanding of what governments do that works and does not work. This is the same principle that we're applying to the work on industrials. At this point, I, I want to I switch things up a bit, and I want to ask you about semiconductors. Okay, so you're, you're smiling. Um, so, so I know that you have been doing some work on this. How, how much are you able to, to talk about it? Look, um, uh, what we are trying to do with with semiconductors is essentially the same uh, as we've done on agriculture and on aluminum, okay, which is to identify what are the kinds of support that governments provide uh, and what are the kinds of of impacts that that support might have on on global markets. So what we've discovered, again, is that uh, there is significant support uh, support that's provided by a number of governments. Some of that r- support relates to um, investment in research and development, scientific research and development, which by and large 
although not always, uh, is, is a very good thing. Some of that res- uh, support relates to investment incentives at quite often local uh, provincial levels of government, for example, to encourage you know, location of a plant or a facility uh, uh, nearby. Um, some of that support relates to below market uh, uh, financing. And some of that support, uh, in fact, a lot of that support relates to equity investments uh, by, by governments. So direct government state investment uh, in firms uh, in the semiconductor business. Are you able to say anything about how the pattern of support is different to that in aluminium? It's in the same order of magnitude. Um, the, the, the pattern that's different relates to equity uh, injections uh, by, by governments. We didn't see that in the aluminium sector. We don't see much of that in agriculture. We saw a lot of that in semiconductors. Are you able to say anything about whether China and or the US are providing support to the semiconductors industry? No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, listeners will have to wait. Nice try. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Ken, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you both. That was Ken Ash, Director of Trade and Agriculture at the OECD in Paris. Before we leave you, uh, I'm just going to pull out what I think are some of the hot takes in all of this. So so main, main one is that we need more data. We need to agree on what the problem is before we find the solution. And we also need to distinguish between different kinds of government support. There's the kind that just bloats the system, and that's different from the kind that actually supports innovation. But we're also seeing there's different kinds of subsidies that arise at different points in the value chain of certain industries, and these are quite important. This aluminum report basically found that the producers in the in the earlier stages of the supply chain for aluminum were getting directly subsidized. They're getting cheap energy, including cheap coal. And it's not just state-owned enterprises, but private sector companies too. And you combine all these subsidies, and there are these financial incentives to produce the more sophisticated, higher-value products that are farther down on the aluminum supply chain. In this case, I just I'm I'm a bit afraid of where all of this gets us. I'm I'm afraid that we're going to do all of this data gathering, this data collection. We're going to identify all of these problems, and then it's just not going to change government's willingness to to withdraw any of these subsidies. So so just taking the example of of the steel forum. Now that that's at the OECD. Ken is not part of that bit of the OECD that's doing that, separate to his work. But we had this forum and recently it collapsed. The Chinese said, you know what, we're out. It's probably something to do with the fact that most of the forum is just other countries getting annoyed at China because yes, they are a big, big subsidizer of steel. And there I don't think there was any mystery that the Chinese were, were giving lots of subsidies to their industry. And so I guess I worry, you know, supposing you did this for the steel industry and you come up with this amazing report that says they're giving X billion dollars worth of subsidies, is that going to change their mind? Now, perhaps what we really need to do is, is write these reports, gather all this information, identify which kinds of subsidies are the most distortive, and then try and, and agree on rules or constraints or, or something that would, would stop the problems from building up in other industries. I, I think we do actually underestimate how big a problem the lack of information and in, in understanding is in this area. 
there's a really big issue. We don't know how big the size of, of these subsidies are. I think there's an even bigger problem, which is we don't all agree on what constitutes a subsidy. I think what China might consider to be a subsidy is actually quite different right now from what the United States or the Europeans might define to be a subsidy. And until we agree on even that basic approach, defining what a subsidy is and then measuring it, I really do think there, there's very little hope for progress in this area. I'm just not feeling very optimistic today. Well, my optimism a little bit comes from the fact that the OEC did tackle this subsidy problem in agriculture 30, 40 years ago. At the time, we were faced with a lot of the same challenges. We had no idea where the subsidies were being given across different products, across different industries, by different countries, through what types of policies. And until we could actually figure that out, you couldn't even have a conversation about what to negotiate over. Now, granted, we haven't fixed all the problems in, in agriculture, and there's still lots of subsidies being given there. But the climate and what it is we're talking about is actually much better today than it was 30 or 40 years ago. And I'm hopeful that the same thing could happen in, in these industrial sectors as well with more information coming to light. Yeah. Listeners, you have a go. Make me feel more hopeful. I think we should leave it there. That is all for Trade Talks. Uh, a huge thanks again to Ken Ash, the Director of Trade and Agriculture at the OECD in Paris. For more on the aluminium sector and the value chain, do check out episode number 50. That is Aluminium Made in the USA. And thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samir Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because two uh, reports on industrials are, are better than one. And of course, uh, the 30 uh, annual reports on agriculture, they should be helpful as well.